The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus Fenstaden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, we're picking up the discussion on debt in part because from our last conversation that we had with Inka Aragoke from Quartz, we determined that debt really is going to be one of the key issues between now and the end of the year. Lots of new developments uh, came out over the past few days. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa, Kenyan President Uru Kenyatta, and Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, all three this week gave impassioned pleas for the international community to once again get engaged in the debt relief issue. Now, these are the same pleas that they've been making going back all the way to March. In fact, March 23rd is when Prime Minister Abayi really made the first plea and appeal for African debt relief. Uh, since then, there's been some progress on the G20's debt service suspension initiative, uh, there's also been some progress at the IMF and the World Bank. We've seen some hints of progress with the Chinese. But all in all, based on the intensity of the appeals coming from these African leaders, there really hasn't been enough. Now, let's go through what they're asking for. For the most part, here's a summary of, of what they're asking for. They want to extend the G20s. DSSI, that's the Debt Service Suspension Initiative, through 2021. So that would give a holiday to pay back interest on their debt. They also want to provide an immediate cash injection of between 100 and $150 billion to assist African economies facing liquidity challenges. That is a chronic problem now in many African countries. They also want the International Monetary Fund to issue special drawing rights that would provide an additional capital injection to the world's poorest countries. And they're also calling for debt cancellation, very different than the debt restructuring. Two new developments this week from Zambia and Angola, and that's what's going to be the focus of our conversation today. Uh, just a week after Angola reached a debt restructuring deal, both with the IMF and with China, there are now new doubts emerging over the government's ability to service its debts even beyond the payment holidays that it's received, based in part on a report that revealed the state-owned oil giant Sonangol in their 2019 debt repayments, they exceeded the core profits of the company. So what that means is if Sonangol cannot generate enough profit to pay back the debts, then where is that money going to come from? So now all of a sudden investors are starting to get more concerned that the debt restructuring deal may not be as exciting as they first thought. Finally, also in Zambia, the finance minister tried to reassure the international financial community with an announcement that he wants to try and reach a restructuring deal with creditors within six months. And what he's trying to do is tamp out the flames that have really are burning up uh, Zambia's credit rating and their credibility within 24 hours of Zambia defaulting on three eurobond notes worth about $3 billion, Fitch ratings downgraded the country's credit rating. That is going to make it much more expensive in the future for Zambia to borrow. And at the same time, this is a warning that other countries may follow Zambia's lead right now in defaulting on some or all of their debts. Kobus, you've been writing about this. You had an article that came out this week in Business Day Live that talked about China's role in all of this. 
I drew the parallel between the situation in Zambia and and other ones that are emerging in in other African countries, um, and a situation in in Laos, which we've discussed discussed before. Um, you know, kind of where where they ended up uh, doing a kind of a debt for equity swap deal, um, which which saved Laos from default on on commercial debt, but at the same time essentially put a Chinese company in um, in control of Laos's national power grid. So I made the point that. That even though this this kind of deal will will I you know to my mind lead to a, this kind of firestorm of controversy I think in any African country if if it goes through in any African country, it might end up actually being the more attractive deal for African governments because they might they might find some kind of negotiation space with the Chinese um, to save you know to to save some political capital at home um, and at the same time they they will they will avoid default but you know kind of that that will that will then really, really, I think, you know, kind of up the stakes in terms of the, the political relationship between China and, and African governments. Now, given China's outsized role in Africa's debt situation in the crisis right now, there's been a lot of attention on what China's doing or not doing, for that matter. Uh, there's been a lot of criticism from the G7 as well as World Bank President David Malpass. But today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about what private creditors are doing and look at the whole picture of the debt situation. And we want to get the perspective of asset managers and those private creditors and bondholders. And for that, we're so honored to have on the show for the first time Mark Boland, who's a senior credit research analyst at Red Intelligence. Uh, for those of you not familiar with Red, it's a risk assessment service for asset managers. Uh, just so you know that Mark has an extensive background in African debt issues. Uh, before he joined Red, he was an Africa and Middle East economist at Bloomberg. And prior to that, he was a senior economist at IHS Global Insight. Mark, thank you so much for joining us from London. We really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. You have been following the situation in Angola. We're going to go through a couple of the different countries one by one. Let's start with Angola. Tell us what we need to know about what happened in Angola and what we still don't know. Well, it depends on how far you want to go back, but I mean, Angola was one of the countries that borrowed heaviest from China. I mean, it's, there's, I described a kind of modern engagement between China and Africa as, as having, you know, the three stages, early stages when, you know, China in the 2000, when the oil price was just continuing to climb and China was very concerned if they could keep this sort of Chinese economy going because they were paying more and more for the oil price and they were importing more and more oil and was you know seeking all around the world to uh, to essentially source this oil and that's why it got into a lot of uh, deals debt where they lent money to places like Venezuela Angola Sudan and this was backed uh, by oil deliveries and they had an escrow account where you know they would finance uh, infrastructure projects in Angola and then it would be gradually paid off by oil deliveries oil shipments uh, and you know it would be tagged to uh, well, tagged to the spot oil price. Uh, so, and that's the situation of Angola. It is quite a messy situation where, uh, you know, you had different banks lending, but the biggest, you know, seeing the most significant lenders in Angola is China Development Bank and China Exim Bank. And what makes Angola unique, uh, well, fairly unique uh, when it comes to Africa is the big lending from China Development Bank, which has a, a uh, quite sort of interesting history, which I'm sure you've uh, you've covered in in previous podcasts. What about the debt restructuring deal that just happened? I know you've been commenting quite a bit on Twitter about that. 
and with the IMF and the Chinese? And was that a really as significant as everybody thought it was because it was the first time that we've seen a major Chinese debt restructuring deal in Africa so far? Well, I would say it's definitely significant, but I think it's yet yet a deal. Uh, it's still to be finalized. The, as you uh, know, the IMF report was initially to be discussed on July 30th, but then that was postponed until after the summer recess. And if you look at the, I mean, that report that was to be published in, uh, in late July, early August after that meeting. The wording is very similar to what you have in the actual report that were released, uh, was it last week? Uh, just about a week or so. And he's still talking about uh, the deeds uh, they're finalizing an agreement. And I think it's quite clear that the parties are further away than is actually uh, implied in this wording that there's still the negotiations are still ongoing i mean that's what we saw uh, we had a statement from the um, chinese foreign ministry spokesman that uh, progress these uh, negotiations are still ongoing and progress is being made but uh, there's still a deal uh, the deal is still to be made and i think it could be a couple of weeks before we actually see an official announcement, it could drag out even further. How do you see this new report about the profitability of Sonangol impacting on this deal? Well, this is a, uh, I mean, it's it's the buy, it's the debt of the government that is negotiated. Uh, I mean, that consider this. So, of course, the Sonangol, I don't think it directly affects the deal. Uh, what you had was quite a complex arrangement where China Development Bank lent uh, billions uh, to Sonangol. And then Sonangol, after the uh, drop in the oil price in 2014, Sonangol wasn't making money and couldn't really uh, service this debt. So what CDB did, China Development Bank, was they uh, initiated this credit line. It was as big as uh, $15 billion dollars. I'm not sure, it's, it's still not clear exactly how much of that was, was actually drawn upon, but the, the uh, government drew on that money to recapitalize Sonangol and paying back the, uh, the loans from China. So the uh, debt from China, China Development Bank now is actually to the Angolan government rather than Sonangol, so I don't think it affects the deal directly. And of course, uh, you know, the... Uh, links between uh, Sonangol and Angolan government are pretty complex. I mean, it was seen as a kind of a center of excellence. There uh, one, well, a few parts of the Angolan governments that could actually get things done, and that's why it took on a lot of uh, operations that are normally done by the government. That's why uh, the IMF came up with this term, the quasi-fiscal operations of the Sonangol, essentially paying for fuel subsidies and other things that essentially uh, different government departments should be doing. Help us understand something, because there's a very important point of contention between China and the G7 finance ministers, some of the G20 countries, about the role of China Development Bank, what's classified as commercial debt, what's classified as a debt from a policy bank, and how those fold into the DSSI. And that's a very big kind of point of issue among all these different players. David Malpass, the World Bank president, has criticized China for this for complicating and muddying the water, particularly around China Development Bank. Do you can you help us understand what that issue is about? Yes, I mean I think it goes back to I mean the uh, I mean there is no China Inc. There's not one body. There are definitely different bodies that have 
operated. You have, you know, the policy banks uh, involved. And China Exim Bank is kind of a traditional sort of expert supporting agency. And it's quite clear that uh, that is included in the DSSI. But China Development Bank, I mean, from the name, you'd think it's pretty clear that it is a policy bank. And I mean, that's it's how it operated, set up in 1994 to support sort of government projects in China. And then it started lending outside of China, in Africa and other places in the mid 2000s. And um, I mean, this operation with Sonangol is, is a pretty uh, complicated operation. And uh, China Development Bank also came in to kind of take over loans from other Chinese banks that had lent to uh, lent to Angola uh, in order, you know, this program to secure the oil deliveries. So, I mean, China Development Bank was officially, well, if I'm not mistaken, it was kind of restructured as a commercial bank in December 2008 in, in contrast to uh, China Exim Bank has lent to uh, not only to governments, but also to private companies and Sonangol being uh, the foremost of those. And also at commercial rates, while China Exim Bank is, is generally lent at uh, more concessional rates and Chinese policy banks have generally lent at slightly higher banks, higher rates than uh, than uh, uh, the World Bank and other multilateral institutions, but far lower than the commercial creditors. So, I mean, this is a very kind of tangled situation, which China has been trying to kind of tidy up in the last few years. You had the China FOCAC, the uh, Forum for China-Africa Cooperation in 2018, where they made clear that there would be a, a a clearer separation between this commercial lending and the concessional lending. And it's really, really uh, tidying up that, I mean, clearing out all the sort of crossed lines that is, uh, is essentially what is going on now and why China is in the situation it is in regards to Africa. If we um, step back a little from from um, the Angolan situation, um, you know, I, I, I suppose you know what one of the big differences between the previous bout of, of debt cancellation that we saw um, in in the two thousands and the current debt crisis in Africa now is that is that commercial and eurobond debt is making up so much bigger a proportion of of the of the debt in question. Um, so how like how do kind of private creditors see the current Current calls coming from you know from people like Ramaphosa and Uru Kenyatta for these kind of large large pauses in repayment and large kind of even even cancellation of debt. You know, kind of how is that discussed in private creditor circles? Yes, I mean you're correct that you know in contrast to the previous debt crisis, 80s, 90s, it's a, a lot more dispersed creditor landscape, both when it comes to sort of the bilateral, where of course China is now the biggest bilateral creditor and uh, uh, a lot of the sort of western and sort of japan are actually they've lent a lot through uh, through un and other world bank rather uh, un institutions and other development banks so their bilateral bank the bilateral debt is actually quite small in their contribution to the dssi that is is also that and you've also seen a shift in the private sector uh, private creditor landscape, where previously it was uh, largely banks lending to this uh, to these countries, both in you know U.S. banks, Latin America, 
and I guess in Africa would be more commercial European banks. And now you have, well, since the 2007, well, you had initial sort of tentative uh, entry into the uh, eurobond market with Ghana and then you had the European the um, global financial crisis you had a sort of temporary pause and it started again in in 2010 2011 really um, in in earnest and then it's really ramped up so you have a lot more uh, dispersed creditor landscape and as I mentioned in the uh, DSI report I published in uh, September 11 which I'm happy to share with any anyone who's interested is and I think that two main consequences of this is I think it, it's you know coordination is going to be very much more difficult because these asset managers they they don't hold uh, they don't invest on their own behalf as Esan uh, Iran sorry if I mispronounced the name, I wrote in the letter to a China Africa project uh, blog, which I thought was very good. It's actually money invested on behalf of their uh, of their investors. And uh, this is a very dispersed landscape. And it's, uh, I mean, I think it was clear from the beginning of the DSSI that it would be virtually impossible to uh, to coordinate, to get this, you know, coordination, necessary coordination to actually have any... Uh, any private sector involvement in the DSSI. And I think, you know, everyone kind of realized quite soon that there wouldn't be any voluntary private sector uh, involvement in the DSSI. And I think that will be the case, even if it is extended into uh, 2021, as is being discussed and suggested by the the, uh, G7 ahead of the uh, G20 meeting. But it also means, which I think is just as important, that eventual credit losses will be a lot more dispersed. You won't have this kind of large debt exposures to developing countries, undermining the uh, the uh, solvency of of the banking sector in the in the credit countries, as as was the case in the U.S. in the 1980s and. Uh, of course, I shouldn't call Greece a developing country, although I think some categorizers are developing countries and some uh, bond indices or whatever they are. But I mean, that was also the question to the Greek debt crisis. They couldn't write off this debt without blowing big holes in the uh, in the balance sheet of uh, very large European banks. But with uh, the uh, African Eurobond debt being, uh, the holdings being so dispersed, you could quite, that is not a problem when it comes to writing off the uh, commercial debt or the Eurobond debt in um, Eurobond debt for African countries. And I don't think China and, uh, and the G7 are that far apart on that point. But whether that is actually being, uh, being fully priced in, I don't think that is fully priced into the Eurobond market. And uh, I think it is a risk or there's quite a high probability that it will be that uh, be priced in, resulting in spikes in uh, Eurobond yields for uh, a lot of these uh, African sovereign bond issues over the next few months as this kind of framework becomes clear in the G20 uh, G20 meeting in November and you have the uh, sort of finance minister and central bank meeting for the G20 is in two weeks time at about the same time as the IMF and the four meetings so it's going to be very interesting times ahead. Well there's a lot of tension right now in the market in part because there is the policy side of the equation which seems to be very angry with the private creditor side of the equation. So David Malpass, once again, the president of the World Bank, a couple weeks ago said, and I quote here, commercial creditors as a group need to look to the longer run. 
These countries are a potential source of future income, and the right thing is to look to debt relief. I'm frustrated that commercial creditors have been continuing to take very large payments from the poorest countries. We've also seen frustration from uh, NGOs, the Jubilee Debt Campaign. Lots of stakeholders in Africa have also been calling for debt relief. That letter that you referred to, to the China Africa Project, which was excellent, I'll put it in the show notes, uh, and it was really in defense of private creditors because I was also very critical about this group called the Private Creditor Working Group, which was supposedly set up uh, I think with 25 different asset managers, asset management firms, and they were going to reportedly negotiate settlements. Well, they haven't done anything, so I called it a joke. And and then this uh, this reader of ours in our subscriber to our newsletter, he responded and he said, I wanted to say that while I completely understand the notion of painting bondholders as part of the African debt relief problem, I think the tendency to vilify our industry is misplaced and overly simplistic. Now, you work in that side of the industry here. When you see the criticisms coming from the likes of David Malpass and listening to scholars and academics and other various stakeholders who say they should cancel the debt or do something, it runs right up against the fiduciary responsibilities that many of these asset management firms have. They literally cannot actually cancel the debt, legally speaking. They're bound to actually pursue uh, a, a repayment. And talk to us a little bit about that conflict that's there. Yeah, I think it's very clear. I mean, you would, as an asset manager, you would have to, you have the fiduciary duty to act in the best interest of your clients. So in order to, uh, to come to an agreement, you would essentially have to contact every client uh, of yours, everyone who's invested in this fund. And I mean, if you add to that, you know, now a lot of money is from exchange traded funds. I mean, it's very, you know, very very difficult to actually find out who are the bondholders and then you'd have to get them all to agree and then you'd have to get all the other asset managers or the all the other sort of private banks and whatever people who are investing in uh, invested in these bonds and get them all to agree to similar terms you get you know all this sort of you know trading companies and all that and i mean i think it's a virtually in impossible it's impossible yes, and, uh, but also some of the who the the investors are also pension funds, retirees, teachers, firemen, whatnot, yeah. too. And there's a, a moral issue here that they can't stand to lose their money either. They're depending on the returns from these investments in order to sustain retirements and pensions. Yes, I mean, that's what you've seen that with, you know, the sort of traditional, the sort of the interest rates on the traditional instruments that, you know, pension funds are invested in. So UK gilts, you know, government, government bonds from, uh, from developed countries like the UK, the US, Germany, a lot of them are now in negative territory. So you're not going to get, you're actually paying to hold them, you know, paying for the, for the benefit of holding a safe security where you, you know, won't have to worry about, uh, default. So, of course, you know, that has pushed this money into riskier assets. And uh, I mean, I think it's quite clear from the beginning that there would be defaults. I mean, and in theory, it's a match made in heaven. You have these sort of African countries that need to invest in, in infrastructure things that will give a return, but probably only on 10, 20, 30 years, which is also the sort of time horizon that, you know, you are people are are investing in if they're saving in their pensions and they're in their 30s 40s so in theory it's a match made in heaven but i think it was always clear that you know it would end in tears for quite a few countries and uh if you look at a comments i mean i think that is kind of a bit of a taboo uh 
topic or a statement among these asset managers to say that you know they will admit that there will be private sector involvement in these uh, well that there will be defaults and that there will be private sector involvement in this i mean some just seem to think that china will write off all their debts and uh you know, charlie robertson thinking you know everyone else has got a bailout so these these people are investing in in uh, African countries, investing, you know, development in these uh, these countries should also get a bailout. But I think that is, um, uh, yeah, I think it's, I don't know if it's just kind of make-believe or if I think it's just very difficult <laughs> to say, you know, admit that they're going to be private sector involvement in these countries uh, just because, you know, you're going to risk risk inflows into your fund and, uh, you know, that you're not acting in the best uh, best interest of your clients. So um, Eric mentioned, you know, that Zambia is currently, you know, trying to negotiate a deal with the IMF and, and it's, um, it's you know, they're, they're, they're probably quite ambitious in terms of wanting to wanting to uh, you know kind of negotiate a deal like that in in a few months um i i read somewhere that that you know kind of a restructuring of, of mozambican um you know kind of bond debt took three years to negotiate so you know so in that case is there, so so say say um the zambian you know um negotiation fails um and the, it isn't possible to to negotiate that kind of a uh, deal with the imf what happens then like are we talking you know, private creditors suing the Zambian government, or you know, what 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 kind of tools are then open to these private creditors? Yes, to make clear, so Zambia has not defaulted yet. So what they've done is asked for a standstill payment from a standstill agreement, a six-month one, running from 14th of October to April 14th next year, where they're essentially not going to pay the interest payments on both the euro bonds. And they're looking to do a similar treatment for the private sector debt, uh, other well, debt to commercial creditors. And uh, our understanding is that uh, so the eurobond holders will have to vote on this. Uh, they need a majority of uh, 75% across the three bonds that they have issued to uh, to agree to this. And our understanding is that the bondholders are not happy with this, they, that they will not uh, agree to this standstill agreement. And uh, then if Zambia does not pay, it's, uh, it has an upcoming Eurobond payments in, in October, they don't pay that, then they will be officially in default. And um, well, so I think I think this kind of yeah, the whole plan is is fairly quite ambitious, and uh, it's not going to succeed in getting the standstill agreement. But I mean, the Zambian hope was that they would get a IMF agreement by the end of this standstill agreement in Q2 next year, because um, it's it's one of the few countries in Africa that has not received any IMF help at all, just because the IMF essentially does not view that their debt as being sustainable. So they, uh, Sambian, what they're trying to do is essentially negotiate with their uh, debt holders to make the debt sustainable and get some IMF support, IMF funds. And so that's the Sambian plan. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at WitsChinaAfrica or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. 
Zambia is one situation where there's a lot of concern. Uh, Fitch ratings immediately after did initiate a downgrade of uh, of four. So in, it it may not be an official default, but already in the eyes of at least the credit ratings agencies, it is. Moody's is sounding the warning now on Mozambique. There are concerns about South Africa stability. So when you look at the continent as a whole right now, and we see, again, in the context of these appeals that keep coming from the major African countries' leaders, what's your forecast looking forward for the next three to six months as we enter into this very, very complicated phase of the economic crisis? Yeah, I think think it's going to be complicated. I think, I mean, that's that's the main word. But I definitely think it's going to be in the highlights during the, you have the IMF four meeting coming up in two weeks' time. You have the G20 summit in November. And and I think, you know, getting Angola out of the picture, I think, will help things. But uh, you're still going to have this kind of clash. I mean, Africa and other developing countries are essentially caught in this clash, primarily between China and the U.S., uh, but also uh you know, the wider G7, G20 is, you know, Africa is going to need substantial financial help. And who's going to who's going to finance that bill? I mean, it's quite clear the U.S. and uh, Japan uh, says it's China. They've lent all this money recklessly and they need to kind of step up and and uh, and uh, pay their fair share and help out these countries that they've lent so freely to. While China says, hey, you know, we've, you know, why you know this DSSI is? I mean, almost all of it is is Chinese debt. I mean, it's uh, I think around two thirds of the sum of the actual uh, the debt that's going to be deferred, not not forgiven. So will have to be well in theory repaid at a later point is actual actually from China. So I mean, when you say that you know when the Japanese finance minister Taro Aso said, you know, China needs to pay its fair share, he's not really taking into account that, you know, DSSI, the contribution from China to that is 10 times the sum of uh, Japan for uh, for the May to December period. And that's, you know, not considering that Japan is a, a, is a very much richer country per capita than, than China. So it's essentially finding sort of an equitable solution to who's going to help out these, uh, or how are these, how are sort of the developed countries going to come together to help to give these uh, African countries the financial support they need? You know, if, if there is a series of defaults, um, you know, running across Africa, and, and, and if, if private creditors are involved, where does that leave the private creditors? Do, do they do they end up having to to absorb that loss? Or is there is there some kind of legal recourse for them to get some of that some of those loans back? I think it is clear that there will be private sector involvement uh, in in uh, defaults coming up, and if you look at, uh, for instance, Republic of Congo got to a sort of debt restructuring deal with the IMF and China last year, where the Chinese essentially uh, they agreed to uh, to extend uh, two thirds of their debt. Uh, forget the exact sums; I think it was one or two billion. So it wasn't massive sums, definitely not for China. They, to defer uh, or to extend the maturity of two-thirds of that debt by 15 years. And then Republic of Congo agreed that the remaining third, that they would repay that by the end of 2021, which is now looking pretty unlikely. But uh, the 
problem with that deal, I mean, they did get a first IMF disbursement. They get an, did get an IMF program and a first disbursement of funds. But then the program has essentially been on ice because uh, the uh, private creditors, in this case was uh, uh, Trafigura and, uh, and Glencore, did not agree to the sort of write-downs of the debt that was kind of part of that deal. So I think that is... It's quite significant. I think it shows that the problem with the debt relief is is not going to be in China, I think, even though, of course, they need to work out the differences with the US and the rest of the G20, uh, but with the private sector creditors. And uh, I don't think, as I mentioned before, I don't think China and the G7 are really too far apart when it comes to, uh, when it comes to uh, the private sector involvement in any debt restructuring. So there's no leverage over the private sector debt and the private creditor debt because the jurisdictions are so spread out. No one organization has it. I think that's one of the difficulties that we're running into with this debt crisis because back in the old days, in the 80s, for example, most of the debt was consolidated with international financial institutions. So the decisions could be made in London and Washington and basta pasta, everything's done. Now, as you pointed out, gazillions of bondholders have to be you know, involved in any solution, and there's no compelling legal force, that, as far as I can see, that would bring a resolution to this. So where does that leave us? Let's close our discussion now in terms of what's the takeaway, because these African leaders for six months have been asking for the same thing and have made effectively no progress. As far as I know, the IMF is no closer to actually issuing a new special drawing rights, in part because, as you pointed out, there is this pressure in the United States to make sure that China and Iran and U.S. enemies like Venezuela don't get access to any special drawing rights because when the IMF does an SDR, every single member of the IMF is granted money. So that makes it difficult on the SDRs. In terms of the 100 to $150 billion infusion that they've been asking for to help resolve the liquidity crisis, haven't heard anything on that. Meantime, European, American, Japanese, and Chinese governments have passed trillions of dollars of, uh, uh, of new stimulus. Where are we? What, what's going to happen here? Do, is, are, are these emerging markets in Africa and elsewhere just going to fall off a cliff and into the abyss, as Prime Minister Abayi warned? No, there are going to be defaults. I think that is clear, but I wouldn't say that uh, you know, all countries are in a position where they're going to default. I mean, there are definitely countries that are... Uh, in a relatively good position uh, that have the majority of the debt is from multilateral institutions, very low interest rates. And uh, I mean, they're, they're going to have to take a sort of economic pain, devalue their currencies. I think, you know, very many African currencies are overvalued. They're going to have to devalue the currencies and improve your balance of payments on that way. And, uh, and I think, you know, there are I mean, you say there's no leverage. I mean, it's very hard. I mean, that's a coordination issue. Uh, it's very difficult, well, impossible to get, you know, get the coordination, get all these people into the same room as, as was possible with the multilateral debt relief in, uh, in the early 2000 and in, in LATAM with the U.S. banks in the 1980s. But uh, I think, you know, I think the outcome is you're going to have a deal. Uh, I think there is going to be some agreement uh, Parties are going to get together. The G20 summit in November is going to be interesting. I mean, that's after the U.S. elections. So President Trump is still going to be there. The question is if he's an outgoing president or just as or has been re-elected. Re I definitely think a Biden administration would be 
uh, would be more conducive to have a sort of a, a deal with China and the other rest of the G20 on a, D, uh, on a DSSI suspension or a IMF, uh, IMF uh, uh, new issuance of the SDR. So uh, I, think, I think it's going to be drawn out. I think it's unlikely going to have a deal uh, in G20. Uh, the G20 summit in November It's going to go out into the next year. I think the uh, question now for a lot of these uh, private sector creditors, well, I think it is going to be increasingly priced in that it's it's not just Zambia that's going to be in default. I think personally think Ghana is in very in a very uh, difficult situation. They haven't borrowed very much from China, but they borrowed very heavily in the eurobond market. But I mean, that's it's going to be crystallised what countries are are heading for a default. And uh, I mean, a lot of these, some of these countries, um, most notably Kenya, Ghana, Nigeria, did not apply for the DSSI suspension because they were still hoping to issue eurobonds when the kind of the market settles. But I think, I think that window is not going to reopen. And for countries that are, you know, Ryan both, well, Ghana is running a, a fiscal deficit of almost 14% of GDP this year. I mean, most of it is going to be financed in the... Uh, in the uh, domestic market, but I mean, they essentially, if they don't have the access to the sort of eurobond market, they're going to have to run a lot tighter fiscal policy, and that's going to be challenging, especially if you're heading into an election. I mean, now I think Ghana is quite clear they're going to tighten fiscal policy after the elections in December, but I think you know they're already paying 50% of their uh, revenue, government revenue, in just to service the debt and the interest costs. So. Uh, you know, so they're going to have to cut in our other areas. It's going to be very challenging. I don't think the market has really priced this in uh, adequately. And I think the question of seniority of debt is also going to come into the fore. That's uh, something we've highlighted at Red. My colleague David Orbe Gaves has, has spoken more directly with the eurobond holders and uh, other commercial creditors, and their concern is that uh, you know if these uh, Chinese creditors, I mean, and some of them are actually, and have been lending on commercial terms, but if they are, if they are labeled as, as official bilateral creditors, you know, they might, may participate in the DSSI, but it also means that their seniority is probably going to be ranked higher in any debt restructuring, and uh, they're going to get more of, uh, of their claims back uh, than uh, any commercial creditors. So that's also something that is going to come into focus, but I think it's going to be uh, it's going to be a drawn out process into next year, and uh, it's it's not going to be clear across clear cut across the board. It sounds like it's going to be long, drawn out, messy, complicated, and extremely painful for constituents. I mean, for African residents and citizens in many countries, including Zambia, Ghana, and others. That belt tightening you talk about doesn't sound like it's going to be very uh, very fun. So. Uh, Mark Boland is the Senior Credit Research Analyst at Red Intelligence. He joins us from London. Thank you so much for taking the time to, to explain some of this for us. You know, we're, we don't come from the asset management, private equity backgrounds and the private creditor background, so it's really helpful to get your insights on this. You are very active on Twitter. Where can people find you there? Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, we could definitely talk about this for hours. And hopefully be a bit wiser after it, but uh, it's it's not a clear-cut situation. So definitely follow me on Twitter, 
we also have uh, Red Intelligence, so get me, drop me a message there if you're interested in. Uh, I penned a report, I published a report in uh, uh, early September, which I think is still very relevant to uh, anyone who wants to get their head around that situation. So very happy to share that. So and also LinkedIn and other forums. So please do get in touch if you're you're interested. Okay, I'll double check and I'll make sure to put all of those links in the show notes. So if you want to follow Mark or get in touch with him about any of the things that we've discussed today, you'll be able to do so in the show notes. Once again, Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We really appreciate it. Many thanks. It was a pleasure. Kobus, throughout the discussion with Mark, I just kept coming back to the same point in my head. I was like, I think so many African states are screwed. I mean, I just, I don't, I can't get past the fact that here we are six to eight months into this crisis and these presidents and prime ministers are making the same appeals. And when Mark is kind of talking about the contraction in the economy, some countries will default, I think he's absolutely right. But I think he's speaking in very analytical terms, which is typical for the type of research that he does. But when we're talking about those contractions in the economy and some countries defaulting, that's an enormous amount of human pain, particularly at the moment when public health and social services budgets are running very, very low. And the fact that the United States and China, along with the international community, haven't been able to come up with the 100 to $150 billion is remarkable to me. We have yet to see any of this major cash infusion to resolve the liquidity crises. And I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that in a place like Washington, there just isn't the appetite to provide that type of liquidity out of concern that it will go to repay back Chinese loans. One has to think that the geopolitics are looming in the background of this. Otherwise, $100 billion in today's world is nothing. I mean, we're talking about the United States passing trillions of dollars of stimulus. Same in Europe, same in China, same in Japan. So $100 billion, if these countries wanted to come up with it, if they were motivated to come up with it, they certainly could. But you remember, we spoke with Vera Songwei from the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa, what, two, three months ago? And she was making that call back then? No progress. Again, it's why I think that, I think some countries are just going to get screwed. And that's just the way it is. Yeah, um, I, I think I think at the moment, though, like one 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 of I, I agree with you that I think a lot of countries are going to suffer a lot, um, and that suffering is obviously going to be visited on the breadth of the population, you know, because this kind of belt tightening or austerity measures that will inevitably be called for will end up, you know, impacting healthcare and social services and education and so on. So, yeah, you know, kind of I'm I'm definitely very worried about that, but I do think that. That even if one looks at it through, a, I think there's a compelling geopolitical argument to make for the support. You know, um, I think I think at the moment, and 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 we've we've made this this point I think many times before, um, is that I think the 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 Americans and the Europeans and and some of the other players are under a, they have a kind of a false perception of how isolated they are from Africa. Um, and you know, particularly the Europeans, you know, like we, like I've I've kind of rung this bell several times, but I think I think the kind of level of of instability this 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 economic contraction is going to cause is definitely going to have impacts in Europe. Like there's there's definitely it's definitely going to worsen the the migration problem in Europe considerably. Um, and I mean, Europe is already stretched on that on on dealing with that issue. Um, it's gonna it's gonna it's it's gonna I think have a, a kind of a complicated double effect where 
on the one hand, I think it's going to it's going to actually entrench China's position in in Africa. So if for for kind of U.S. Kind of stakeholders, if that's what they're worried about, then this is going to worsen that situation, I think. Um, and at the same time, it's going to significantly worsen the, the security situation in, in, you know, kind of in in Africa, which is going to directly impact on on U.S. armed forces there. So I think the the idea that all of this is happening far away from Europe, far away from the U.S., is an illusion. And that I think is is something that that doesn't seem to be breaking through to these leaders. And this is the point that's been made by a number of different analysts, which is if they think 100 or $150 billion is expensive now, wait until we have the situations that you're talking about, which is mass migration from Africa across the Mediterranean into Southern Europe, which is failed states that will generate uh, more presence of ISIS like we're seeing in northern Mozambique. And as you talked about rightly, the fact that this is going to open up new opportunities for the Chinese to expand their influence in Africa. I was thinking about this today when I was writing the newsletter, and there was a news piece that crossed that Hisense, that's the state-owned uh, white goods maker and electronics manufacturer, uh, they opened up or they announced a plan to open up a new factory in South Africa, north of Cape Town, where they're going to hire 200 more people. I posted that on Twitter today, and the response was just overwhelming. I mean, there were so many people saying, this is what we need, this is great news, this is amazing. And it just shows that a small factory of with 200 people in it, relatively small, can generate that much positive response that the geopolitical opportunities here for the country that understands how to do this could be enormous. And and you've talked about this as well in your piece in Business Day, that these changes that we're seeing in the economic landscape may also lead to profound changes in the geopolitical arena as well. Yeah, yeah. You know, kind of, I think, and, and in the end, I think the, the real winner out of all of this will be China. Um, you know, because because it will end up, you know, China already has so much leverage, um, you know, through through the amount of debt that it has. So so kind of working out even minimally, you know, kind of like softened versions of like deals, you know, de- deals that 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 where where you kind of like make the landing even that little bit softer for African governments is going to end up actually really entrenching China in you know kind of in in the African landscape um because the rest of the of the world is 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 made up by actors that that are so disengaged with the with the continent at the moment like the US and the UK or you know this kind of myriad of of kind of commercial actors all of these you know kind of euro bond investors and so on who who either they don't really have a constituency they don't really have a, they're not located anywhere they're kind of free floating in the air in, in, in weird ways and you know the, and they don't care you know kind of like generally you know they the the the, the economic health of africa is 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 one of, among many of their priorities and not a very high one you know so 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 compared to that it's easy for for the chinese to play this as you know kind of as we here to help you know kind of and and in that kind of dire situation that that message could well land you know so so i think in in the end the what the, when when the dust settles i think is we're going to see a considerably weakened europe and us in 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 africa and a considerably entrenched china two final points here before we go number one is that we have to remember that the amount of debt that china has in africa which is about 120 to 140 billion dollars i think that's the number I forget, but it's in that range. While it's a lot for each individual African country, for a $14 trillion economy like China's, this is insignificant. So you're right, Kobus, that China will have the leverage, it will take the time, it will renegotiate, it will push back the repayments of these debts, and it can afford to wait because, again, the amounts 
on a macro level are not that uh, significant. The other point is you've been raising quite a bit in your writing, and we've talked about it a lot in our newsletter, this experimental deal that the Chinese did in Laos. And it's going to be an area that we continue to monitor. In fact, Kobus, I just found an expert today who is studies uh, Chinese state-owned enterprise deals in Laos. And I'm going to reach out to her to see if she can come on the show and we can talk to her about what's going on with the state-owned electric company in Laos to see if that is in fact a potential model for other markets around the world and why they chose Laos to do that first before everywhere else. So stay tuned. I'm looking for that the guest and I will try to bring her on the show. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. If you enjoy the topics that we talked about today, the deep dive that we did on debt, we would love to have you join our community of readers who subscribe to our daily email newsletter. Folks like Mark in the asset management space, the economic research sector, uh, are we have a lot of subscribers there in the United Nations, World Bank, the United, the United States government, uh, South African government, the Foreign Commonwealth Office. We're very proud that our, our readership is expanding in the diplomatic, political, and also in the analyst space as well. Join us. It's only $3 for three months to try it out. See if you like it. Copus and I put our hearts into it every single day. Uh, I spend about 12 hours a day putting this thing together and uh, would love to make sure that uh, you, you give it a try. So go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. Okay, that's it. We'll be back again next week with another show. So for Copus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kuobas at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China in Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.